This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. Under the Paris Climate Accord, if a country emits more carbon than they agreed, it looks bad, but there are no penalties. So why are we celebrating the Paris Accord as a policy breakthrough? Today, we're going to look at how international policies for sustainability are made. We're going to focus not so much on what country pledged what in the Paris Accord, but rather on how global policies for sustainability are made. In particular, a major shift has taken place. We have moved from agreeing on fair targets for every country to simply having each country say what it is willing to do and report progress towards that goal. Soft law means yeah, that you have, a international, you have an international contract or an international agreement. That's Jörg Meyer-Ries, senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies and a staff member at the German Environmental Ministry. There are no penalties. They don't have to pay. They don't get any, whatever, exclusions from different uh, it's just, circles. It's just kind of embarrassing if yeah. you don't. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah. This, is, um, this is a very normal instrument, meanwhile. Policymaking for sustainability didn't look like this until just a few years ago. It was more like a poker game where one country might say, I'll see your 10% reduction and raise you five percentage points. So it was kind of like there were winners and losers. The countries were challenging each other, not just working together. They were sort of competing. Under the new rules, there are no winners and losers, just participants. The game is based on goodwill. There are just limits to, to compliance. Elmar Krieger of the Potsdam Institute of Climate Impact Research agrees that peer pressure works better than penalties in global sustainability agreements. And um, that's, of course, being attempted. We talk about sanctions and these kind of things. But um, um, we need to be aware on the international level that uh, um, really um, it's more about nudging. Basically, Penalties don't work because there is no global government. For instance, when it became clear that Canada was going to miss its carbon target in the Kyoto Protocol for 2012, the Canadian government simply left the agreement rather than pay a fine. And of course, the United States never ratified Kyoto at all. So the new approach is aimed at getting and keeping everyone on board. Agenda 2030 is the UN's Sustainable Development Agenda. The 17 SDGs he talked about are the Sustainable Development Goals, and there are reporting requirements. In other words, countries are expected to tell each other how well they are doing in reaching their targets. For sustainable development, it's clear that there can't be a, a law or international contract with, with concrete sanctions, hard sanctions. He says the approach is working. Even in the first year, uh, I think we had more than 20 countries who wanted to report 
on a scheme which was completely new. I mean, they had just some weeks or months to, to deal with that for the SDGs. Uh, okay. Yeah. And now in this year, in 2017, there was the second uh, UN high-level commission. Uh, I don't know, I think about, about 40 uh, voluntary countries reporting. Okay. Peer pressure and finger pointing have thus replaced penalties, both in the SDGs and in the Paris Climate Accord. But the Paris Climate Accord and the SDGs differ in one major respect. The Paris Agreement is simpler than the 17 SDGs. Paris is really just about carbon emissions, and the SDGs are kind of about everything. It's about to do with your health situation, your life quality situation. It'll make so, your, your life yeah, better. Your life better. But if we want to do that, we have to do something on the environment, but also on the health system and on the mobility system. So uh, this, is, this is sustainability in your local area, these three policy fields. The first two SDGs, for instance, call for poverty and hunger to be overcome. There's also an SDG for gender, one for education, one for clean water, one for peace, and one for life underwater, and one for life on land. Barbara Neumann, a researcher at the IASS, talked about how the SDGs must be seen as one package, not a list of disparate items. The agenda is meant to be indivisible, that, which means that states should not just pick SDGs that they think those are the ones that we want to look at or that are convenient for us to look at, but that states understand it's the whole agenda that we aspire to implement. Nonetheless, different countries will be better at reaching different goals. We can't implement the whole agenda in the same way in all 189 nations that we have. So there is a challenge to that being global agenda and an indivisible agenda. But the important thing to understand is that the 17 goals are not prioritized. Peace, number 16, is not less important than number 9 on industry, innovation and infrastructure. Maybe you can say that having zero hunger and poverty as the first two ones, that's the legacy of the MDGs very strongly because that's what they were focusing on. The SDGs are successors to the UN's previous MDGs, or Millennium Development Goals. There were eight of them set in 2000 for 2015. Reducing poverty and hunger was the first MDG. And that still is a, a big and critical problem, but just because climate change is under 13, we can't really say, or partnerships is uh, the second last one, we can't say uh, those are less important. Deal with that last. De deal with that last, yeah. yes. I have no idea uh, how they started to order them. But otherwise, all of the 17 SDGs are treated as equally important. However, there are sometimes trade-offs between goals. I asked Ortwin Renn, scientific director at the IASS, to talk about this. So if you take the goal of continuous economic growth, that obviously conflicts with the goal of reducing our 
uh, resource use and uh, our uh, energy consumption. Now we can decouple it, but growth and absolute reduction of resources doesn't go together. So at this point we need to reconcile that specific conflict, but there are many others in the SDGs where we have conflicts between these SDGs and we need to resolve them. What's another conflict? Oh, another conflict, for example, is that uh, we see that you know uh, you want to have an increase in in um, education, an increase in social service, and at the same time, it's a, a decrease of public spending. Um, both of that don't go together, uh, and either you want one or the other. Here, we have to understand that there are 169 indicators for the 17 SDGs. So roughly 10 indicators for each goal. More effective public spending, which could be interpreted as a larger role for the private sector, is a financial indicator. Elmar Krieger says that there are not only such trade-offs between various SDGs, but also synergies. Let's take the example of, of energy and, and, and climate and air pollution. If we mitigate emissions, that means uh, phasing out coal. It's definitely uh, an improvement also for air pollution. He argues that policymakers should stress the synergies in communicating the SDGs. So let's take this into account because we get an extra argument. It's, it's much more attractive maybe to do a policy that both would help air uh, quality as well as climate rather than if we just look at it in isolation. But he also believes that some trade-offs will hamper implementation. For instance, a lot of people in poor countries still cook over open fires using firewood. They suffer from the health impacts of breathing so much smoke. Fossil fuel could be cleaner. Propane might be an, uh, is an important alternative. So if we then try to phase out fossil fuels, this might counteract our um, uh, policies in the indoor cooking domain. So we need to think about that interaction as well, introduce some counteracting policies to not get this effect. Mm -hmm. What we can show is that if you think about it holistically, we really can, I think, uh, most of the trade-offs can, can be dealt with. Barbara Neumann also had examples of positive and negative feedback between the goals. She talked about the conflict between climate change, number 13, and life below water, number 14. Sea level rise will possibly uh, lead to wetlands either drowning or they want to move up to higher elevations. Uh, but then when countries uh, put a, a, a dike, um, this is like a wall and it prevents the wetlands from moving up. Barbara says this conflict is called coastal squeeze when coastlines are squeezed out between rising sea level and land barriers to prevent flooding. For example, in, in northern Germany we have these. We have lots of dikes uh, along the west coast to protect low-lying coastal lands from storm surges and from flooding. And with sea level rise, those storm surges will run up higher. It might put an additional pressure on the ecosystems. But there are also possibilities to work around that, to uh, include nature in solutions. How do we resolve such conflicts? Again, scientists can only provide us with information. 
they can't tell us what to do. In the end, I think it will be a political decision. Uh, I hope it will be a decision that's based on good knowledge and on a good dialogue between the policy making community and between the evidence making community, i.e. scientists, but also stakeholders, people that know what happens, where are the problems, where are the issues, and also where do we want to go. So the SDGs focus on a wide range of issues and allow countries with different starting points and potential to progress at different rates in different areas. How did this approach get implemented in the Paris Climate Agreement? In case of climate, we have developed a lot because of the INDC's mechanism. That's Manuel Pulgar Vidal of the WWF. He's talking about the INDCs. That stands for Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. They are basically the carbon reductions each country brought to Paris as a pledge. Nationally determined contribution means that every country decided, on its own, what it is willing to contribute. The only pressure to do more comes from comparisons with other countries. Somebody might say you're not doing enough, but that's it. I asked Manuel what he thought about using peer pressure as a tool in international policy making. Very important. I see that the Paris Agreement, uh, it was possible because included mechanism to make it gradually enforceable. No? So the idea it is that by having this uh, gradual approach, we are at the same time building gradually more capacities and channeling gradually more financial resources. So the pledges themselves were not the breakthrough. Instead, it was the acknowledgement that more must be done. And Paris offers a way to make the pledges more ambitious. The idea of the pledges in the beginning was to create confidence, to say to all the countries that we want to know exactly what are you planning to do. Sajani, a participant from Nepal, said the countries suffering the most are heard the least. Do we have any voice of these countries in climate negotiation when we are talking about this? It's very weird for me to, you know, reflect back and see where things are going wrong and where, where should we head ahead. It's very complicated. She might at least be pleased to know that Fiji has the presidency of COP23, which will take place in Germany in 2017. Fiji it is very important because it is one of the most vulnerable countries in sense of it is an uh, island, Pacific island country, that it is suffering directly the consequences of climate change. We've talked a lot about how Paris was a major step forward, but it was also part of a longer process. Um, so my name is Nevina Sanchez and I am um, associate lecturer at the University of Cologne on climate change and migration. I asked Navina, who was one of the participants, what she thought about Paris as a breakthrough. The thing is, a lot of people focus on Paris and the success that Paris was. And if you think about it, yes, Paris was a success in the term that um, for the first time in history, a lot of countries or that many countries agreed 
during a conference on adopting an agreement. So this is, this is something huge. But if we think of in terms of the content of the Paris Agreement, we have to look back two years. Because um, you might remember in 2009, COP15, we had Copenhagen, it was a huge failure. And then the momentum left. Okay, so we have to go back eight years to the 2009 climate conference in Copenhagen. The idea there was that every country was to pledge to reduce emissions by some level agreed globally. In other words, one country might say, we're not going to reduce emissions unless they do it too. That was basically what the United States told China, for instance. The climate conference in Copenhagen was called COP15. COP, or COP, stands for the Conference of Parties, and 15 means the annual conference was held for the 15th time. It changes venues every year. By the time COP18 was held in Doha, Qatar, in 2012, the old failing approach of haggling over targets was being abandoned. So in 2012, at COP18, um, we were discussing in Doha whether the Kyoto Protocol should have a second commitment period. And um, there was this Doha Gateway, which was established, and it was basically the idea for a second phase of the Kyoto Protocol. So actually, all of this starts in the 1990s with the Kyoto Protocol. It divided countries into two groups, Annex 1 and Annex 2. Annex 1 was industrialized countries. They generally had to reduce emissions. Annex 2 countries generally got some slack because they were still developing. But the targets, even for Annex 1 countries, were not uniform, and there were supposed to be penalties for failure. The United States never ratified the Kyoto Protocol, and as I mentioned before, Canada backed out when it became clear that its targets were out of reach. So in 2012, when the first Kyoto targets elapsed, the question was what a successor, what Kyoto 2, might look like, especially since Kyoto 1 had kind of failed. There was already a framework for a successor, but no one really believed it would work any better. Now what happened is the second phase of the Kyoto Protocol was never ratified, so it's never entered into force. At that moment, the world really had no climate treaty. This was the mood leading up to COP19, which took place in Warsaw in 2013. It was decided in Warsaw that we need to do something collectively. So in, in, in um, Warsaw, they created the nationally determined contributions at that time intended, so-called INDCs, um, and there was not many understanding of what the agreement would entail. Here, we see how the INDCs, the intended nationally determined contributions, were a breach with the old Kyoto approach. Instead of haggling over targets, countries could now simply write up what they were willing to do. This was at COP20 in Lima in 2014, the year before Paris. 
So what happened in Lima, we came up with something along 70 pages of text, everything in brackets, but there was a structure. In Paris, the brackets were then filled in. In Paris, what happened is that you had finally a stage where people had to agree on what to delete and what to keep in the document. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something you will realize if you go through the Paris Agreement, there are articles that are interrelated and contradict each other. Navina gives the example of reporting deadlines. Some reports are due every six months, other things once a year, and so forth. She says the negotiators worked in silos, not coordinating enough with each other. Rather, they focused mainly on trying to get every country to agree within that specific topic, and they lacked time to coordinate details like deadlines across these topics. There was no agreement on the timeframes for reporting, so everybody put whatever they understood would be logical as a, as a reporting vehicle, and now this is what is being negotiated in the, in the Paris rulebook. So basically the Paris rulebook is all these great ideas that are in the Paris agreement, how do we translate them into action? And this is what's gonna be negotiated uh, most likely until December 2018. She says we should remember that the Paris Accord was sloppy only because it was written up quickly by a large number of people working late into the night. And if you look at the first version of the Paris Agreement, you will see that there is a paragraph missing. It jumps from 35 to 37. The, the effort, like, I mean, the magic of Paris is really this consensus, and this is something that the Peruvian presidency did, but foremost the French presidency. Thomas Hickman of the University of Potsdam says the agreement signed by the United States and China just before the Paris conference also paved the way for success in Paris. A major dispute that had plagued Kyoto had already been overcome. They seem to have found a solution um, for their national economies before Paris and um, adopted ambitious plans in their national jurisdictions even before nation states came together. Mm -hmm. And with that in, back, in the background, even both um, heads of state met some weeks before the Paris uh, conference. Um, and that was, I mean, the main, in my view, um, a main factor for the successful outcome in Paris. To some extent, it convinced other nations to also do something on climate change and to agree and adopt um, national plans to address climate change. So scientists can't make these decisions for us when there are trade-offs. Mark Lawrence, scientific director at the IASS, said something similar about how scientists can only provide information. Society has to make the decisions. He lectured specifically on climate engineering. Now, if you haven't heard of climate engineering, it's basically the idea of fixing climate change with some new technology, sort of re-engineering the climate so that it doesn't heat up. Mark says he disliked the idea of climate engineering as soon as he heard about it. But as a scientist, he has to keep an open mind and be guided by evidence. So as a scientist, we 
need to be able to distinguish our gut feelings and our passions and, and uh, our moral standpoints that drive us, that often drive us for doing research and the actual research results that we have. What's really important is to not deny the fact that we have gut feelings, but recognize them and explicitly know what they're telling us and be able to work around them. So for me, for the example, was the first time I heard about ocean fertilization, I went through the roof. I thought, this is crazy. You can't possibly do this. Mm. Ocean fertilization, to put it simply, is when you pour some substance into the ocean. That substance then combines with the extra CO2 to create something else that is hopefully harmless and maybe just falls to the bottom of the ocean. If the ocean fills up with more CO2, it becomes acidic. That's the ocean acidification I mentioned before, and that's happening right now. Eventually, shellfish will not be able to make shells, and the food chain could be broken. So would this new substance we pour into the oceans to fix the problem really just, I don't know, sink to the bottom of the ocean without causing any harm? Well, we don't really know. And then went into investigating it to try to understand some of what the impacts would be and found that there's all sorts of side effects and we basically have written it off the table. And the same thing for putting particles in the stratosphere. I said, this is really something that we don't want to get into. It's not the world that I want to live in. What Mark's talking about now is doing the same thing with the atmosphere, putting some substance in it artificially and intentionally to bind with carbon dioxide, hopefully without any nasty side effects. But now we investigate it and we find more and more that there is a potential for it to be functional with all sorts of risks. Mm -hmm. But we haven't found anything that's a showstopper yet. And so we need to keep an open mind to understanding that the science tells us what we can do with it, but then in making decisions, as policymakers have to make them, they're going to have to go from a value basis. So once again, science can only provide us with information, not tell us what to do. Society has to decide what the values are, of right, course. Right, the right. scientists can help you understand connections between values and actions in mm -hmm. terms of social science. Mm -hmm. They can help you understand the connections between actions and consequences from the natural sciences. But the values that to, to define the connections between what you understand and what you know and what you decide to do, that comes from society, not from sciences. Mm -hmm. okay. So what does science tell us? In his talk to the summer school, Mark spoke about how the complexity of climate change makes it hard for us to think about it. Science tells us that we are globally emitting 1,000 tons of carbon dioxide every second. Through a whole range of things like coal-fired power plants, uh, oil being used in cars, um, fuels used in air traffic, through agricultural practices, uh, through a number of different ways, and on top of the CO2 emissions, we have emissions of other climate forces that are warming the world at the moment by about as much as CO2 and are also cooling parts of the world, so regionally like, dispersed. You're talking about like, like methane and... Yeah, like soot and methane and okay. ozone warming the world, and then sulfate and nitrate aerosols that are cooling the world. Okay. In other words, 
Some things humans do are heating up the climate, like carbon and methane emissions, while other things we're doing, like emitting soot, cool down the planet. But the overall impact is a hotter planet. So that basically means to do something significant about it to the point of being able to, to stay within the Paris Agreement's temperature limits of two degrees warming means we have to restructure substantial elements of our entire society. Mm. It's not just better technologies that will give us mm. more efficient refrigerators and a few renewable energy power plants around. It means really rethinking our ways of transportation, mm. our ways of consumption, including our food habits. Um, vast restructuring, vast rethinking that mm. is behind that. This topic is, frankly, one that the climate community is uncomfortable communicating. We apparently have to tell people there is no easy technology fix for the problem of climate change. We're going to have to change our lifestyles or re-engineer the climate. But let's go back to soot cooling the planet while carbon and methane heated up. What difference does that make? Global warming is really a measure of the, the overall average global surface temperature that's happening. But the average global surface temperature doesn't mean that the surface temperature increases by, for instance, two degrees C everywhere. Mm -hmm. It could be that it increases by three or four or five degrees Celsius in some places, mm -hmm. and that it might even decrease slightly in some other places, mm -hmm. depending on how far we get down the line and how it's being, how the global warming is being caused. Uh, especially in the, the high, very high latitudes, the Arctic tends to warm much more fast than other places. Mm -hmm. So, and we could also end up with regional differences, that the particles that warm the atmosphere, like soot, that are, tend to be emitted most strongly in southern Asia, might cause a much stronger warming in southern Asia than you would experience in eastern Asia, where you have a mass of particles that cool the atmosphere, like sulfate, being produced in, from the emissions. Okay. Mark himself struggles to explain such complexities in ways that non-experts can understand. I got it, being produced from the emissions. I was, I was trying to avoid saying being emitted because you don't emit sulfate, but I didn't want to say emitting sulfur dioxide that produces sulfate. So I said being produced from the emissions. And so that so you emit something and you emit sulfur dioxide, then it produces the chemical sulfate. reaction happens in the atmosphere. Yeah, and I always find a hard time figuring out how to say that, and that just occurred to me. That was a nice, easy way to say it. Well, yeah. practice yeah. makes perfect. Right? Cool. The summer school not only included lectures by such experts as Mark Lawrence, but also workshops. The first one was held by the IASS's Tim Butler and Patrick Toussaint, experts on air quality. Now, you might think that air quality is so important that it must be one of the SDGs, but it isn't. Instead, it's an indicator spread across two SDGs. SDG 3 is on good health and well-being, and SDG 11 on sustainable cities and communities. Tim and Patrick asked the roughly 40 participants at the Potsdam Summer School to form groups of just a few people in order to investigate 
an SDG of their choice to see whether air pollution could be an indicator for that goal as well. The participants were able to justify having air quality as an indicator for practically all of the SDGs. In fact, it was easier to say which SDGs were not easily related to air quality. At the end of each day, the participants came together to collect their ideas about that day. They formed groups based on their main topic of interest. They then found others with the same interest and tried to cover an SDG. The groups all consisted of a few people, but SDG 1 started off as small as possible. You're the only person interested in no poverty. Yeah, I think so. I'm the only poor person here. <laughs> Everyone else is rich. The participants thus created the kind of silos that Navina talked about. Groups of experts on specific topics, but from different countries, negotiating in their field of expertise. In other words, the summer school ended each day with a kind of mock SDG negotiation conference. The instructions are clear, I think, what, what the task is for the groups. We didn't want to assign the goals to you. Yeah? We wanted you to choose the goal that you most identify with and to also mingle, that you don't stay in the same groups all the time. So what I would ask you to do is, please go to the SDG with which you identify most. And I actually realized we need some more space, but only a little bit. Here's what the discussions sounded like in some of the groups. 6.1 is related to, for example, 6. And then there is a line, a big line, yes. which the, the goals is related. Then we can, we can start writing here, 6.1. It must, okay, I, I, I totally, I'm also, in, I'm, I'm just But you're just confused within this too, Yeah, right? because yeah. I think you can, of course, in the city you have people, people need water, this is uh, indivisible, but, but how, how can it promote? Related, uh, everything would be related, I mean, the water is uh, essential for life, so every goal is related to, I mean, but not in the, the other way is... But not in the same way. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is more on the policy level, I mean. But this is related. This is, of course, this yeah. is related, adaptive capacity in the policy. Now, like, so it's like but a, how much is it related? Somehow it's related. I mean, all of them are related, so, yeah. but it's, like, it's, a, it's a matter of positive or... Some places women don't own land. I know that. Well, that's a huge problem, <laughs> actually. Yeah. They don't have the rights to own land. And they are kind of marginalized. Even and even the, the, some places they have contradictory land tenureship. Um, where it's been owned communally and also at the federal level. Yeah, to achieve 1.4, gender inequality is a challenge. I asked one of the participants whether the exercise had been useful for her. My name is Candace Newman. I'm a senior policy advisor in the energy sector at Natural Resources Canada in Ottawa. I thought the exercise was excellent and it was a really good way for us to examine um, which sustainable development goals may contradict others and I think that's an exercise that I can bring back in which we could look at our mandate and we could compare our the elements of our mandate against the sustainable development goals. I also thought the exercise was useful 
because it focused on the process of how sustainability goals come about. I learned that the goals themselves are not laws of nature. They are common ground decided on by those participating in the process. So it really matters who gets to participate. The goals we finally agree on reflect our values, and they differ from one society to another. Science doesn't deal with subjectively relative values. It deals with objectively verifiable knowledge. Science tells us what can be done, but society still has to decide what should be done. Which brings me to next week's topic, governance. How can we make decisions as a society? Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us next week. The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music in the background is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen, and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if so, tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the ISS, signing off.